Okay, we are continuing our study of Romans chapter 9, really 9 through 11, which we said is one tightly argued unit, 9 through 11. And you have to really read it that way because the opening in chapter 9 culminates in the concluding paragraph in chapter 11. So this whole three-chapter set goes together as one tightly argued unit. So we're picking up in the middle of chapter 9, which is the first bit of this, and we're going to pick up in this session in Romans 9, verse 19, and we're going to go all the way down through verse 29. And as we begin this section, it's important to remember where we're at in Romans 9. A couple of really important points. We need to keep our eyes squarely on the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9. Paul is retelling the story of the nation of Israel to make a very important point. In fact, it's the whole nation of Israel that's at the center of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the reason for that is Paul has to address a very real both pastoral and practical problem as well as a theological problem. It's a problem that he has encountered routinely in his preaching ministry around the Mediterranean. And that that problem is this. Well, what about all the Jews who haven't believed that Jesus is the Messiah? Has God's word to Israel failed? And that's the problem, both pastorally and theologically, that is driving this section. So we have to keep our eye squarely on the nation of Israel here in this section. And the other thing we want to keep our eye on is this, that as we we pay attention to the nation of Israel here, we want to realize that what Paul is saying as he retells this story is that God has always had to make choices about who he's going to use and how he's going to use them to carry his promise forward. It wasn't going to be just anybody and everybody, so it wasn't Esau, but it was Jacob. It wasn't Ishmael, but it was Isaac. And in fact, with the nation of Israel and Moses there in the Exodus story, God was merciful to Moses and showed compassion to him and to the nation by continuing to go with them, even when they didn't deserve it. And at the same time, he fulfilled his purpose through Pharaoh, who routinely hardened his heart. And so God, you know, said, fine, you want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. And he Uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart as well. And so now Pharaoh is used as a way to carry God's purposes forward. And so Paul says there at the end of verse 18 that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And that word hardened there at the end of verse 18 will be really important when we get uh, to kind of the culmination of this argument about Israel in, in chapter 11, where he talks about the hardening that has happened to Israel. And so We are really dealing with how God has carried his purposes forward in both his sovereignty and his mercy. Verse 19 then picks up at that point and will wrestle with this question of sovereignty and mercy and God's choosing who he's going to use and how he's going to use them. And it does so using a very common and well-known illustration, something that was common to everyday life, so an ordinary person could respond to it. It was just part and parcel of the world of that day. And it was something that was fairly common to Old Testament imagery about Israel. Let me read you verses 19 through 21 and the objection now to what Paul has just said. Verse 19 reads like this, you will say to me then, why does he, meaning God, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And so the objection here in verse 19 is, well, if God is making these choices and if God is the one moving his purposes forward, 
then why does God have any right to find fault? I mean, he's the one making these choices, and who can resist what God's going to choose to do, right? Paul's response to that is basically, uh, wait a second, you're not God, and you just need to kind of know your place. In a nutshell, that's what he says. Listen, it reads like this in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? And so Paul's answer to this objection is, look, you're not the potter. You're the piece of clay. And God is free in his sovereignty to make his own choices how he wants to use that clay. And so we don't have a right, Paul says, to find fault with God, to object to God, to speak back to God. Our job as the lump of clay is to be grateful for our part in God's story, our part in what God is doing in the world. And as I already noted, this imagery of potter and clay not only was an everyday image that people from just the world of the day could relate to because it was just so common, but it, it had been used of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the most thoroughgoing and well-known passages that uses this imagery is Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. In fact, some scholars actually see a possible allusion to that passage here in Romans 9, or at least a playing off of that passage, because the imagery is similar, and the theme isn't that far off of what happens there in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. In that text, Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house and watch the potter as he's molding something out of the clay. He's making something, doesn't turn out quite right, and so he smushes up the clay and then refastens it into the pot that he wants it to make. And there in Jeremiah 18, God's response to that is, don't I have the same right to do with people, nations, Israel, my people even, whatever I want, I'm like the potter, you're like the clay. And that's really a similar theme to here in Romans chapter 9. God's the potter, and he has a right to do with the clay what he wants. And here in Romans chapter 9, what Paul says is, can't the potter, i.e. God, make from the same lump of clay, can he take a chunk of that lump of clay and form that into a vessel for honorable use, meaning a a pot or a maybe a cup or maybe a you know a pitcher for holding water something that is going to be very ornate and elaborate and used maybe in a royal household or used in a fancy meal right it's used for honorable purposes um, and then he could also take a chunk out of that lump and he can just form it into an everyday ordinary old bowl or pot for just ordinary daily use the potter has the right to do that because it's his clay, and he's the one making stuff out of the clay. And the point is, God has that same freedom, right? God has that same freedom. Now, Paul goes on here in verses 22 through 24 and really draws out the implication he wants to focus on for his point here in Romans chapter 9. This is what he says. He says in verse 22, Well, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, what is he talking about? Well, what he's getting at is this. Here is Israel, who even there in that Jeremiah 18 passage, God says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to 
order calamity for you because of your stubbornness, your rebellious, and your disobedience. And that's an allusion, obviously, to the Babylonian destruction and all that. And so Paul, Paul is saying here in Romans 9, like, well, what if God is willing to show wrath? He's willing to judge his people, right? So the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are people who are under God's wrath. They deserve God's judgment. Uh, we're going to get here in a second, vessels of mercy, those to whom God is going to show mercy. So what if God, even though he's willing to, to judge people and hold them accountable and thus show them wrath, what if he endured with much patience those vessels of wrath so that instead of punishing them, instead of destroying them, he he put up with them and continued to work with them for a long period of time. Paul goes on in verse 23 and he says, And he did so, he did this, to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which stands in contrast to vessels of wrath. So God did this. He put up with these vessels of wrath um, so that he could display or make known his, his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Who are the vessels of mercy? Well, verse 24 tells us, even us whom he called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, us, meaning believers in the Messiah, formed together as one new family, Jews and Gentiles together. So what's the point? Well, the point he's getting at is this. What if, what if Israel, because of their stubbornness, their disobedience, and their rebellion, as we read about all throughout the Old Testament story, really deserved wrath. They deserved God's punishment. And what if, instead of destroying them and getting rid of them, God put up with them for century after century after century, not because necessarily they deserved it and not because God wasn't unwilling to punish them, but because God had a long-range plan in mind. And that long-range plan involved sending the Messiah and then forming a new family in the Messiah. That's the point. And so Paul is offering a new perspective. I think that's the reason he actually frames this up as a, a question, because he wants to shift their thinking. Instead of thinking, it's not fair of God to welcome in the Gentiles. It's not fair of God to hold all these people accountable because who can resist his will? What you ought to be thinking is, wow, God was patient. And God was long-suffering, and he did so with mercy in mind so that he could ultimately fulfill his purpose for which he created Israel in the first place, namely forming a people composed of Jews and Gentiles together under the lordship of the Messiah. And so now, here in Romans 9, in order to support that contention that this is how we should read the Old Testament story, Paul Paul is going to cite several Old Testament texts in order to show that that's just what the texts say. This is where the story was always heading. And so he quotes first from Hosea here in verse 25, and he says, Also in Hosea it says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And so he quotes from 
Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, and Hosea 2, 23, both of which speak of uh, the reality that will be true when Israel is restored. And Paul takes those verses, it sounds like in the most broadest sense possible. Whoever was called not my people is now going to be called my people. Both rebellious Jews, unfaithful Jews who were like on the outside looking in, and Gentiles who clearly were not my people. And so in the broadest sense, any and everybody who is not God's people, the, pro- the prophet said, Someday, in the days when Israel's restored, when God actually fulfills his purpose for Israel, someday those who are not God's people are going to be, be part of the people of God. And then in verses 27 through 29, he cites two passages from Isaiah to make the point that even with regard to Israel, it was never intended to be the entire nation of Israel. It was always known that it was going to be a faithful remnant who was saved. So he says in verses 27 through 29, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it's the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And so not all Israel, just a remnant will be saved. And then Verse 29 says, just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, Sabaoth simply means armies or hosts, so unless the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, had left to us a posterity, a remnant, a portion, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, the prophet there is saying, man, If God hadn't been merciful and left a portion of us around, right, we would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it would have been just because we deserved that, right? That Israel has been faithless. That's the story of the whole prophets. Israel has been rebellious and God is now enacting the curses of the covenant upon them. And yet God mercifully saves a remnant of them. And so the quotes from both Hosea and Isaiah together make this point that the, the word of God has always told that when it comes to the story of Israel, it was always going to be a part of Israel, not all of it, only a faithful remnant. And that in the days when that faithful remnant is restored, God is going to bring those who are not his people into a meaning the Gentiles as well. And so Jews and Gentiles form together into one new family under the lordship of Messiah. All right, so let's offer a quick summary of where we're at in this long, sustained argument from 9, 10, and 11. The question that we're dealing with here really is the question of, has God's word come up empty? Has God and his promises been unfaithful to Israel? And Paul's answer is no, no indeed. God has always been narrowing down the descendants of Abraham and making choices about who he'll be merciful to. And we have no place to talk back to God as human beings, right? After all, he's the creator and he can do what he wants. And what if what he actually has done is to put up with a whole bunch of sinful people for century after century who deserved punishment so that in the end, he can save a remnant of people that includes both Jews and Gentiles. That's the point Paul has made here in Romans chapter 9. Now, two important implications should be noted from this section thus far before we move into the next portion of the argument. The first implication is this. All of this really emphasizes God's mercy. All throughout Israel's history, God has worked out his purposes with mercy in view. He's made choices 
on behalf of and for the sake of mercy. It doesn't depend on the one who runs or on the one who wills, but on God who has mercy. He's he's going to be merciful and he's going to do what is kind and generous. He didn't give the vessels of wrath, Pharaoh, the Israelites with the golden calf, the Israelite during the uh, days of the kings, right? He didn't give the vessels of wrath what they deserved. But he put up with them and even used them to accomplish his purposes. And and that's really what's at the heart of this is that God's sovereignty is is carried out with mercy in view. The second implication we should pay attention to at this point in the argument is that this retelling of the story of Israel that we have here in chapter 9 shows that God indeed really has been true to his word. Now, there's more to say about this subject, and he'll continue to say that through chapters 10 and 11, but still, God has been faithful to his word. He has not abandoned Israel. He has not violated his promises. He's been faithful to it, and thus, even though Israel was unfaithful, God proved faithful, and so we too can read that story, and we can realize, man, God is incredibly faithful to his promises, to his purposes in this world, even when his people aren't all they're cracked up to be. And so we can have confidence that God can and does and will carry out his promises and work out his purposes. He did it through Israel's history, and he continues to do that now. God's promises will be realized and fulfilled. Hi, friends. It's John. And as many of you know, the listener's commentary is an entirely crowdfunded endeavor. And I want to say thank you to each and every one of you who give to support this project, whether you give $5, whether you give $50, $100, whatever you give, it's all incredibly helpful. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to support this project, just go to the listenerscommentary.com, click give, and you can support right through there.